This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Welcome to the Deep Dives podcast here on the No Ceilings NBA podcast feed. I'm your host, Nick Agar Johnson. And for the first time this season, my old co-host is back in the chair. So I'm here today with Tyler Metcalf. Tyler, how are you doing this fine afternoon? Nick, I'm fantastic. Just re- reliving the, the good old days. Very excited for today's episode and uh, hopefully doing a, a few more of these now that I now that I have a bit more time going forward. Yeah, uh, I've I've tried to, you know, avoid heaping as many appearances with me on your plate both for your own sanity but you know also for your workload so you know we'll go from there and we'll start with talking about your most recent piece on production versus potential and you cover this at length on friday's episode of the no ceilings nba podcast so check that out if you haven't already so given that you've already done that and gone solo and certainly talked a lot about it i wanted to start with sort of the more general stuff on the article. So let's sort of start with the most basic question. What was it that prompted you to write this piece at this point in the draft cycle? Um, Just when I look at my board, I see a lot of guys where there's a ton of potential of, man, if things go right, if the playmaking comes along, if the pull-up shooting continues to grow, if the defense gets a little more consistent, this guy could be an all-star. Like, this guy is all NBA upside. You know, if you squint hard enough, maybe there's, you know, post, you know, regular season awards in this guy's future. But then you look at the floor, and it's like, oh, boy, does this guy make it to a second contract? And it's like, I'm not entirely sure. And the fact that I'm going through my first round and 90% of it is guys where there's that wide of variance. It's like, okay, what is the realistic possibility that some of these guys even come close, not necessarily hit that 99th percentile outcome, but even sniff it, even come close to approaching it where they're a surefire long-term starter or a really high level role player. And there's just so much variance in this class where it just kind of felt like let's 
talk about it. Let's talk about the um the the constant battle between what a guy could be and what a guy already is. Um, you know, we we all fall victim to it. I've had plenty of misses in the past where it's been, you know, God, if he lands in the right situation and they properly develop him and they give him a little bit of time, the playmaking's gonna come along. If they put him in the more of an on ball role, he can be a high level second side creator with his elite defense. And the odds are that that's never going to happen for that guy. And because situation and landing spot is so crucial. So I, and just in this draft, there are a lot of upperclassmen where I just kind of keep looking at them and I'm like, I'm pretty confident in what I know, what I'm going to get from him if I take him in the first round. So is just because this guy would maybe go in the late twenties in previous drafts, do I want to try and hit this lottery ticket with this guy who, you know, might just even get waived by year three when I could just have a really good eighth, eighth or seventh, eighth guy in the rotation and get him in the middle of the first round. So that, that that's kind of what sparked the idea for the article. This is a fascinating draft to talk about that idea. And I think it's also a fascinating time in the evolution of the NBA to talk about this idea in the sense that, we're starting to see a lot more of teams just either, you know, giving up on first round picks after a couple of years or just throwing them in the G League, you know, giving them a year or two where they barely play any NBA basketball to develop before we even get to the point of, OK, let's see how they do on an NBA floor. And you know, that sort of combination makes this draft a really interesting one to sort of evaluate along those lines, because, you know, on the one hand, if you're not too confident in the players at the top, why not take the swing? Because, you know, you don't think anybody's going to be confidently someone you can plug into your rotation, might as well take the chance versus the flip side of, you know, this is something that you and I have talked about with, you know, playoff teams for quite a while of, you know, if you're picking 20th, you need a guy who can be in your rotation and provide valuable minutes, especially if you're a team that already has your sort of primary guy and just looking to fill in around the edges you know, that swing and a miss on 20 might hurt a lot more in this year's draft than it would in a potentially deeper draft. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the, the, I feel like this conversation is always like really specific to each draft class because, um, you know, with the draft, you always want to hit the, that home run. You always want to take the best player available, the guy who ends up having the best career out of, you know, the, the lot that's available at your draft pick. And, you know, when you're picking in the top five, it's because your team unfortunately sucks. And taking that swing there makes a lot more sense than, you know, I I love Kevin McCuller. I think he's an incredible player. I think he's going to have a really good NBA career. But if someone took him in the top five, it'd be like, what in the world are you doing? Five years from now, you know, when we're doing redrafts and, you know, looking back, maybe McCuller is in the top five then. But the the cost-benefit analysis there, it, it doesn't make sense to take that swing at, or I guess, I guess it really wouldn't be that, that big of a swing, but, you know, settle there. Whereas, you know, taking a guy like Alexander Saar or Jacoby Walter or Ron Holland or Matos Buzelis, where there's way more upside, bit more downside, but that, that risk reward factor makes a lot more sense in the top five. Once you get past that though, in this draft and you're around pick 10, pick 14, pick 20, it's like, why, why are we going to try and take a swing? on a freshman whose production has been all over the place or non-existent just because they were a high high school recruit. They haven't shown anything. Do we really want to spend the time and resources on developing them and really getting them to a place three years from now where 
we could just take a guy who's there already. And whenever you ask a question, ask what, uh, ask the question about, well, if an NBA team is willing to take the time and spend the money and resources in developing them, the answer is almost always going to be no. They're not going to. The, it's an impatient league. Jobs are on the line. If you're not winning, if you're not producing right away, you're not going to last, and it sucks because some of these guys need more time. But that's where where it comes around to go back to school another year. So, like in my piece, I, I highlighted some guys where we kind of have to may have to give up on the idea of them right now. But that's just for this year. They're you know indicators of where go back to school, improve on some things, then maybe come back out next year or a year later. We've seen a lot of guys um, in these recent years go to school for multiple years, really develop their game, make sure they're NBA ready, and then come out of the gates swinging. This is going to start as the weirdest shout out I've ever given on this podcast and end as one of the most predictable shout outs I've ever given on this podcast. So shout out to my dad and Tyler Rucker. So over the holiday break, I was you know at my parents' house talking to my dad about you know sort of evaluating this year's draft you know genuine questions parents asking like hey what are you doing how's how's work you know all that whatever anyway the point being uh the conversation turned to you know sort of the difficulty of trying to figure out when you should take a swing on a guy and you know you're mentioning the top five discussion but here we get to the predictable part of the shout out you know we talked a lot about keegan murray and the article that rucker and i wrote together before that draft about the Kings dilemma with Keegan Murray and at four, do they take the biggest upside swing or do they take the guy who's the perfect fit for the team? And, you know, I mostly brought this up because being me, I was talking about how I was wrong and, you know, how Rucker had the right idea of it and that Keegan Murray fit in so perfectly with the Kings that, you know, it was worth it to, maybe take a chance on a guy who might have a slightly lower upside than a Jaden Ivey versus, you know, the ability that Keegan's going to start right away. And sure enough, he started by the third game of his NBA career. Keegan's going to provide really valuable spacing. And sure enough, he shot, you know, 41% and broke the rookie record for most three pointers made. And Jaden Ivey is in a situation where he's shown real flashes of being the best version of Jaden Ivey that I thought he could be heading into the draft. But the situation in Detroit and, you know, the avenue for him to have the ball in his hands as much as he would on a team that was maximizing his abilities. We haven't seen that yet. Right. And so, you know, a couple of years in Jaden Ivey looks like someone who might be, you know, trending more towards bus is the wrong word, but, you know, trending more towards not in the same echelon as Keegan has gotten to in his year two. And it's the kind of thing where, you know, even at the top of the draft, if there's such a clear sort of fit, is it worth in this draft in particular moving away from best player available to look, you know, if we're going to bring say Cody Williams into the building and, you know, he'll fill a lot of roles for us, you know, he'll be someone that can create with the ball in his hand, someone that can provide size defensively, you know, is that going to be a better bet for a team with multiple ball handlers than say taking a chance on Nikola Tovich? Yeah. And I kind of, to your to to build off that too, I think something that we struggle with so much is that when we look at these older guys coming out, we just kind of think of that's who they are for the next five, six years. That's it. Then their NBA career is over. It's like, no, these guys are 22 NBA primes are what? 25, 26 to 30 ish, somewhere in that range, give or take. So yes, they're a little further along their developmental curve. Um, You know, they're 
career might be a couple years shorter than a freshman if everything goes right for that freshman but they still have plenty to build on and we're in you know to keegan murray's point we've seen him improve since his freshman year we've seen him improve since iowa and he's more ready to contribute to a playoff team while continuing to develop while continuing to improve and being put in a place where even when he is struggling okay then we're gonna bring in harrison barnes and move keegan to the bench and you know there's some lineup um flexibility that can happen where a guy's confidence isn't totally shot and he can learn from a veteran and he can continue to develop and grow his game um and then you know just speaking to this year's draft um you know you mentioned taking a swing on like nikola topic um i i have zachary reese at number one on my board right now and if you told me that that was going to be the case four months ago i would have called you insane but you told me it was anyone besides (laughs) jacoby walter four months ago i would have told you you were going insane. Uh, jacoby's defense has uh not been ideal um but conversation for a different day but when we look at reese i mean it's do I think he has the highest upside in this class right now? No, but am I pretty confident in what he's shown uh, with Borg over these past four months? Am I pretty confident that I'm getting a guy who's a quick decision maker, a versatile defender, effective defender, uh, improved his shooting and can run in transition? Yeah, I, I think he has a really good chance at being a really good starter for a long time. Does a guy like Alexander Saar, if everything goes right, have a lot of a lot more upside probably but I, I think there's a lot more downside to taking a swing on that and i just bring up sar just as a name who's also at the top of boards not trying to throw him under the bus or anything but you know I was in this say, kind of, as someone who just read all the no ceilings boards and saw that i had him in number one on my board okay i see how it is no i i have him at three so i i'm, I'm yeah. not i'm not out on sar by any means but it's just that that consistency from Risa this year plus the potential plus the production it's kind of like one of those, is it the biggest swing? No, but is it kind of a safe bet with high upside? That's kind of what it feels like. And it wouldn't be surprising to me, at least in this draft where top three picks, we see a team kind of take a a, a, a bet similar to that or along the, that line of thinking. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Now's the time to save 30% on wedding jewelry. Only on BlueNile.com. Make sure your wedding ring is the one with your pick of diamond and lab-grown diamond bands, all hand-finished and graded for excellence. Or surprise her with something blue she'll love for life, like a stunning pair of sapphire earrings. Blue Nile's jewelry experts are available 24-7 to help, from fit questions to style advice. Right now, get up to 30% off at BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Yeah, I mean, Risa Shea is not number one on my board, but he has climbed up consistently throughout the iterations that we've done already this season because, yeah, this is a class with, you know, not a lot of sure things. And so ultimately, you know, I totally get your philosophy of at the end of the day, am I confident that he's going to be a contributing NBA starter? Sure. Then, you know, in that case, it's like, you know, 
we can reach back to drafts that maybe were not thought of as strongly at the top and, you know, go through that whole conversation about how, you know, the 2000 Kevin Mar- Kenyon Martin draft was, you know, not that strong or the 2013 draft as a key example of a team taking a chance at number one that maybe didn't work <laughs> as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, sort of, you know, the top of the class is one thing, you know, the other side is what we've also sort of touched on of, you know, what do you do if you're a playoff team in the twenties range? And, you know, I sort of have hung on to this as my sort of key example that I use just because I can, you know, recall it off the top of my head for these sorts of purposes. And when I was first sort of starting to get into basketball more seriously, one of the things that I did not understand at all was how Jay Crowder was player of the year and very productive at Marquette and went 34th because he was entering the draft as I think he was going to be 23 in his first year. And now we're at the point where Jay Crowder's had a decade long NBA career starting in multiple spots, contributing to playoff teams. And, you know, I don't have the list right in front of me of all 33 players taken ahead of him, but I can guarantee that a few of them did not have the kind of careers that he did. And, you know, it's the kind of thing where, this was a huge part of why I was as high on Jaime Hawkins as I was since his sophomore year of look, this dude just knows how to play basketball and contribute positively on both ends. Like why is this guy not a first round pick? And when the answer consistently is, Oh, cause he's a 22 year old. Oh, cause he's a 22 year old. Oh, cause he's a 22 year old. It's like, you know, you and I have talked before about the <laughs> difficulties and issues with just, Oh, he's an older prospect. He's not yeah. worth the chance, but you know, it's particularly clear when it's an example of someone like Jay Crowder or future Hall of Famer Alperin Shangun, who are really productive. In I had to, I had I to, know, I know. <laughs> but you know, players who are really, really productive pre NBA at a certain point, you know, if you're taking an absolute wild swing at 23 on a guy who might not even be an NBA player beyond a cup of coffee, you know, at what point does it become worth it to say, you know what, I'm confident that this guy will be at least a ninth man. You know, that's worth it to me as a playoff team who's already got the established stars in the system going and just needs extra pieces rather than, again, just being like, oh, but, you know, it's the old the old family guy bit with the mystery box It's like, well, yeah. you have the boat or you can have the mystery box. Anything could be in the mystery box. It could even be a boat. <laughs> yeah. And, and th- that's kind of been, you know, something and just going to the age argument, if your first knock against a guy is always, oh, well, he's older. It's like, you, you got to give me something else because it, at this point, it just, it doesn't matter with how, the expectations and the demands of these guys being as high as they are from day one. Age is pretty irrelevant for me right now. Um, it'll be a tiebreaker for me. You know, if I'm, you know, kind of stuck between two guys, it's like, oh, okay, I, you know, the, yeah, the younger guy probably has a lot more upside. And then, you know, it always comes down to a situation of does this team need someone right now or do they need someone next year or, you know, in 10 minutes a game this year and then, you know, build into a bigger role a couple years from now. So it's it, if age is your kind of driving philosophy in the draft, I, I, I think that's an outdated way to look at it now. I, I don't think it's relevant and you know it's obviously it's always a factor it's always a factor in terms of where these guys are on their developmental curve but if it's your end-all be-all i i just kind of think you're doing it wrong right now and we're seeing that year over year with guys like Hami Hakas going what 19th to the heat and would he have been doing this anywhere else but miami and you could always argue no but i think you'd be doing something similar and 
when we look at this draft, you know, it's like guys like Dalton Necht, Kevin McCullough, uh, Tyler Kolek, um, Tristan De Silva. You know, it's just like they just know how to play. And when you look at their numbers, when you look at the tape, it's all just stuff that's constantly contributing to winning basketball. Is it all-star level production? No. But is it stuff where, hey, I can slide you in to any rotation in the league next October and you're going to be able to give me 15 quality minutes off the bench and not not tank the rotation? Yeah. And that's way more than you can say about 90% of rookies. I think there's an element of this as well that and, you know, you can quibble with, you know, how how relatively, quote unquote, fair it is to have the restricted free agency system. But I mean, we were talking earlier about the primes for these players, right? Like if you're drafting a 22 year old, guess what? That second contract, if they're good enough to get one, which is, you know, the hope if you're drafting a guy in the first round is that he sticks around for another few years after that rookie contract ends up, right? It's like, okay, so then you're getting them for the prime of their careers and you've got their rights basically until they hit 30. You know, that's the kind of thing where, you know, the age argument is, you know, interesting in terms of the, you know, again, the sort of mystery box element of, hey, this, you know, 19 year old could grow three inches in the next two years and his game looks totally different. Right. But the flip side is, you know, fair or not, the restricted free agency system essentially gives these teams upwards of, you know, essentially nine years of control over these guys' contracts. And, you know, if you're getting guys who are good enough to, be worth that nine years of control. If you're drafting a 22 year old who's sticking around until 31 versus, you know, you draft a 19 year old and basically they hit free agency, you know, the year after their prime begins, right? Like it's, you know, the age calculus is even more, I think, leaning towards the size of don't factor in age too much when you sort of add in the element of, well, actually, if you draft the older guy, you know, you get the better years of, of his career essentially on a, you know, relatively cost controlled team deal. And, those second contracts are always cheaper than the third one. Um, yes. <laughs> I mean, you, you look at a guy like Austin Reeves, who, you know, there's a lot of agency uh, work that went into him going undrafted and specifically to the Lakers. But once you get into the second round, that happens with guys all the time. And Lakers got him on an incredible second contract. So it, it's stuff like that, where it, it, in terms of team building, in terms mm-hmm. of cap management, especially with, the limitations that the second apron first and second aprons in the new CBA are going to put on teams, having these guys locked down relatively inexpensively while they're close or in their, the primes of their career and contributing, but based on, but on a rookie scale, that's huge. It's kind of like the NFL version of, you know, having an MVP level quarterback on a rookie contract. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, I'm not trying to compare Jaime Hawkes to, you know, Patrick Mahomes or anything, but it's that kind of same um, type of thinking of how can we maximize these guys' production per dollar per dollar value, and you know, do it with with the way the CBA is set up. Some of these juniors and seniors are kind of the route to go with, um, especially once you get into the territory of, oh man, this guy's interesting, but and then you have a long list of red flags or question marks, and it just it doesn't become worth it. And, you know, the flip side of that argument and apologies in advance to anybody who's listening to this from new Orleans, but I mean, you know, Anthony Davis gets to, you know, the end of his rookie deal signs the max extension. Cause Hey, that's where he's going to get his money. Yep. And there were rumblings about him being traded basically almost immediately. 
you know, with Zion Williamson, you know, same sort of deal, you know, ridiculously impressive on, you know, year one and two of that rookie deal, you know, deals with injury, but, you know, impressive enough that they clearly have to sign him for the long term. They do. And it's basically just been, you know, from the day he got to New Orleans, essentially, it's like, okay, how long till he asks out? How long till he moved? Right. And, you know, that's the kind of thing where, you know, health issues aside with Zion, which is obviously a huge part of the calculus, but, you know, even beyond that, assuming that, you know, the rumors of him wanting out of New Orleans as soon as possible are correct, right? Then it's a situation where Zion's still only 23, right? It's like by the time he gets to the end of that deal, he's essentially entering free agency in the prime of his career, and there's nothing New Orleans can do to stop him from leaving. Yeah, and when you're a smaller market team, I mean, there, there's always that risk, and, you know, obviously the media doesn't help with, you know, spurring those on. Um, but when when you take these big home run swings on the the – freshmen or one and dones um and they do need a long time to develop a lot of the time those guys end up you know by the time they hit their third contract and they're kind of coming to fruition of what you once hoped they would be now they're in unrestricted free agency going to a bigger market getting paid and elsewhere and all of your develop all of that team's developmental time and resources is now playing in LA or New York. And, you know, I, I, I do think some of that's changing a little bit, but it's going to be fascinating with how restrictive this new CBA is, how much more movement with that kind of stuff we get um, because there are some massive limitations. So it, it just, it, sometimes it just doesn't make sense to spend or for to, to expect NBA teams to take a swing on a guy and put in all of this time and resources into developing them because they're realistic about there's a good chance that they're not going to have that job by the time that guy potentially gets to where we hope and think he could get to. And that pick could be a big reason why they're out of a job. Yeah. And, you know, this is the more sort of cynical take, but, you know, if you're a GM and you're, your job is maybe, you know, questionably on the line, right? And you say, hey, we're taking this 19-year-old project who you got to wait three years, got to wait three years to see, right? You know, that's maybe an easier job-saving tactic. But, you know, ultimately, if you're, say, I'm trying to think of, you know, a GM example that would be relevant here. If you're Mitch Kupchak and, you know, maybe your job isn't on the line with Charlotte because they don't really care all that much. But, you know, if you're Mitch Kupchak and you're in a situation where, you know, I mean, they took James Booknight at 11 and that has not worked out, right? If you, you know, again, I'm just playing ridiculousness here, but just to sort of get the example across, right? Like if you're someone like Mitch Kupchak and you get Jaime Jaquez and he's a very productive starter for you, right? That's the kind of thing where, gosh, it really does help to save your job to have the team actually do well. And it really helps the team to do well to actually have good players on the team, but the flip side is, you know, it's a lot easier to sell the 19-year-old to ownership, but that doesn't mean it's necessarily the right move for either the immediate or the long-term of the franchise. Yeah, yeah. And it, even to that point, that teenager still has to be intriguing enough to even get minutes and to start yeah. showing some stuff where the coaches and front office can start, you know, use that as a selling point of, hey, we're, we're building towards something, um, you know, we're, we're really, you know, just got to give it some time and we're, we're going to get there. You have to see it in some form or fashion. And a lot of the time, I mean, we go through the last handful of drafts outside of the guys picked in the top three to five. It's not super uncommon for these guys to just kind of 
not get consistent minutes or get consistent yeah. roles for a myriad of reasons, whether they're not good enough, whether they're not ready enough, whether they're, they're just being outplayed or, you know, injuries or whatever. But it it's really rare for 18, 19 year old rookies to get meaningful time to, to get those live reps, unless they're in the situation where they're being sold as the franchise cornerstone, in which case, that coaching staff, that front office is going to throw them out there for every possible minute. And, you know, this will, this will intrigue you because it's Michigan guys, but, you know, look at the situation with Orlando where they have Jet Howard, who has just taken 11th overall and Caleb Houston, who was a second round pick last year, but Houston's further along defensively. And they're both primarily out there to be three point shooters. And, you know, there are certainly quibbles within the magic fandom about the, how that minute distribution has gone, but you know, ultimately, if you're a coach mostly, right, it's like, all right, we're a team that unexpectedly is mm-hmm. playoff caliber team, right? Like we're a little bit ahead of schedule. A huge part of that is Franz Wagner being as good as he is. A huge part of that is Paulo coming into the league and being a 20 point a game scorer immediately, right? But, you know, if you're in that position, all of a sudden a team that was a developmental situation where Jed Howard was likely to get a lot of minutes just to, you know, give him experience out there is in a situation where every game is suddenly much more important. And therefore, you know, if you don't have the skills to get yourself out there on the court, right, you're going to play a lot of time in the G League. And Jed Howard's been tearing it up in the G League, right? But, you know, he's not getting those minutes with the big team precisely because he's not ready enough now as opposed to Caleb Houston. And, you know, again, it's a situation that, you know, you love to be in if you're the Magic, right? But if you're Jet Howard, it's like, oh, wow, I was drafted here thinking I was going to play all these minutes. And, you know, the guy who they, their other lottery pick, Anthony Black, is starting, right? Because the avenue for him is a lot easier to see. But, you know, again, it's the kind of thing where, you know, year two, maybe Jet Howard comes out and makes all this look foolish. But as of right now, he's not playing and Caleb Houston is. Yeah, and and that goes down so much to, obviously, current, team performance like you said but also the culture that the coach wants to build and i mean we saw you mentioned Jaden ivy earlier and that's one of the painstaking things with monty williams is just dead set on building a culture of defense when they've just been awful at at defense all year and still not playing Jaden ivy so it's like what you're not accomplishing either of your goals here you're not developing your former top five pick and you're not being good at defense so what are we doing whereas you know mostly is all right well you know, Caleb Houston's defending a little better than Jed Howard would. So we're maintaining that um, identity of being a good defensive team. And that's what the magic have been all year. So it's playing to your strengths. It's setting a culture and having expectations and making sure that guys live up to them and are matching them. As long as it's consistent, it works. It's when those paths start to deviate and you're saying one thing, but doing another, that's where you start losing the team. That's where guys get uh, disenfranchised with their roles, with their expectations. And it's really easy to lose guys. And this is going to be painful for me, but I do have to go through it anyway. There is a flip side of this, which is, you know, actually sort of a positive way of looking at it, which is the Kings Tyrese Halliburton trade Mm -hmm. where, you know, I would have wanted Tyrese Halliburton to stay a King forever. And certainly all the comments he made around the time of the trade made it clear that, he loved Sacramento just as much as Sacramento loved him, or, you know, maybe slightly less because Sacramento adores him, but that's a different, <laughs> different matter. You know, the flip side being that, wow, Tyrese Halliburton is, you know, all NBA level, you know, if not all the NBA, certainly all-star level player for the Pacers and De'Aaron Fox is scoring 30 points a game. And the question becomes, 
you know, would either of them be having the seasons that they are currently having if they had been forced into sort of a time sharing system? And, you know, that time sharing system worked really well in, you know, in year one. But the question was, you know, long term, certainly Sabonis is a lot more sense, makes a lot more sense as a fit alongside De'Aaron Fox. And, you know, certainly for Halliburton, given how good De'Aaron Fox is, he probably wouldn't have gotten to run his own team until and unless there was a trade, right? And so, you know, now we're seeing, okay, you know, Tyrese Halliburton is, is an exceptional player. Like, you know, Kings fans already knew that, right? But the flip side being, would De'Aaron Fox be a 30-point-per-game scorer with Tyrese Halliburton still on the team? And the answer is probably not. Yeah, it's just it situation is something that matters so much. And it's I, I think we, we talk about this after every draft where it's we'll, – you know, like Derek Lively last year, let's say, where it's like, you know, post-draft, you know, going into the draft, I probably had him 15-ish. He goes 12 to Dallas. After the draft, it was like, oh, God, I probably have him closer to seven or eight because I just love that fit for him because I think he's going to be put in a perfect spot to do what he's good at now, not be asked to do more, and kind of develop into a really, really good player. And he's been able to do that from day one because he's been put in a spot to succeed. And when a lot of guys aren't put in a spot to succeed because there's positional overlap, because the fit isn't good, because there's unrest with the coaching staff or the front office or the roster itself, it's just a recipe for disaster. And fit is everything with these guys. The, The raw talent's important, but if you're put in the wrong situation, we see it every single year with a lot of guys. It's just they, they never they're they're set up for failure and just never have a chance. And you know, with lively, it's slightly different just because he's got a more specialized skill set yeah, than sure. than Keegan Murray. But you know, those two guys is a very clear example of wow, Derek Lively's been spectacularly successful because everything he does well is being emphasized and everything he does poorly doesn't matter as much as it would in another situation like you know if if Derek Lively were you know and this is ridiculous but I'm going to go with it anyway for the sake of the argument if Derek Lively were in Victor Wembanyama's spot and being asked to do what Victor Wembanyama has been doing this year the Spurs would probably be 0 and 32 instead of 5 and 27 right but because Derek Lively is in a situation where again everything he does well is being maximized by Luka Doncic and the rest of the team around him and everything he does poorly it's like you don't need Derek Lively to shoot threes on that team right, right. just do what he does best. And he's been spectacularly successful at doing what he does best. But, you know, again, if he falls past Dallas at 10, is there a team that makes sense for him anywhere between 10 and like 20? Maybe not. I mean, off the top of my head, I remember it being kind of situation where it's like, if Lively doesn't go here, where does he go? Where does he go? That makes sense. And ultimately that didn't end up mattering because he went to the perfect place for him to go. Yeah. And I just, even going back to Wimby, um, and the, that's not a good Spurs team. And the situation isn't necessarily set up for him to succeed right away. And coming out of the draft where people are like, Oh, are the Spurs going to be a a sneaky playoff team? Like, no, of course they're not like who's running their offense. Like they have, like, I I like Devin Vassell long-term. I like Keldon Johnson long-term. I think Trey Jones is a a solid point guard. I like Jeremy Sohan long-term, but they're not ready to compete right now. And rushing it doesn't make sense. Um, You know, having some competence makes sense, um, which unfortunately they don't have right now, but well, rookies... they do during the five minutes a game that Trey Jones is allowed to play <laughs> yeah, with women. Exactly. Now, but that's a different problem, but like ro- rookies aren't, they can con- help contribute to winning, especially these older guys, like we've been talking about, but to expect an 18 or 19 year old to magically push a team into playoff conversations 
it's just ridiculous. They're so far away. The NBA is so freaking good right now. There's so much talent on every single team that these guys cannot be day one franchise cornerstones on a winning team um, when they're that young. So it, it, it just goes back to fit and expectations and being realistic about how putting these guys in the right position to develop and kind of contribute to winning. I mean, I think Victor Weminyama has the specific problem of being the number one pick to the San Antonio Spurs, where, you know, every reference is going to be, oh, well, Tim Duncan, let you know, Tim Duncan, Tim Duncan. He's like, A, Tim Duncan was a four-year college player. B, uh, Tim Duncan only went to the Spurs because David Robinson had been hurt the year before. And so they were a much worse. Yeah. Okay. There we go. Right. You know, they were a much worse team in practice than they were on paper. And all of a sudden, you know, next year comes around and Tim Duncan's there and David Robinson's back. And, oh, wow, they're a really good team. But like, it's really funny because, you know, he gets a lot of questions, let's say now, but I mean, the closest example we've seen to that, anything close to recent history is Trey Young leading the Atlanta Hawks to the Eastern Conference Finals. And even for him, that was year three. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it takes time for guys to contribute right away. Situation has to be perfect or they're older and they're more mature. Yeah. The game's a little slower for them. They know how to play a role. They've because they've played a myriad of roles all through high school and college. They've been the ninth or 10th guy off the bench as a freshman. They developed into the six man as a sophomore. They were a role-playing starter as a junior. And then they were the guy as a senior. They've seen every single level of it. They've seen the game from a myriad of angles and know how to kind of manipulate and impact it from wherever they're needed. They're a, they're more malleable. They're e more easily capable of fitting into any rotation because they've done it before and having that experience is so crucial it's it's similar to what we talk about with guys going from being an on-ball guy to an off-ball player and can you blend those two worlds and if you've never done it it's really really hard to do it right away it takes time and that's okay So before we wrap up, let's just touch on some of the specific players that you talked about in the article. And, you know, as I mentioned up top, you already talked about them on Friday show. So listen to that if you haven't already. But let's just start here with Kevin McCullough, since we've sort of tangentially referenced him throughout the podcast. And as you say in the article, it's pretty simple with McCullough. The main hang up, I'm just going to quote you directly because you're going to say it a lot better than I will. The main hang up from his three seasons there, there being Texas Tech, and now his two at Kansas was the lack of a jumper. Well, looks like Happy learned how to putt. And, you know, sometimes it really is just that simple of, you know, oh, if only he could shoot. Oh, if only he could shoot. Oh, if only he could shoot. And, you know, it's really funny because I actually just talked about this with Lewis Satzman of Raptors Republic on my other podcast, Kings Weekly, for the episode that came out on Monday of Scotty Barnes going from a non-shooter to, oh, all of a sudden he's figured out the shot and everything else is fitting in a lot more easily once you figure that out. Yeah, and like when, when I say that he's learned how to shoot, I, I think it's really important to kind of define what that means because not all shooters mm -hmm. are made the same. I'm not saying he's Steph Curry or JJ Reddick sprinting off screens and hitting movement stuff and constant step backs. He's no Keegan no. Murray. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but what he is, is a competent corner shooter. He's a competent uh, three point outlet where when a teammate kicks out of the post or, you know, collapses the defense on a drive and kicks out to him, you can now trust him to take that shot. And, 
what that also leads to is defenders having to close out on him, which he is now more than competent at attacking and getting into the paint and getting to the rim and drawing fouls and then using that passing skill we've seen from him throughout his entire college career to then kick out to other guys or dump it off to a cutter. It just, it's a level of competence and threat that the defense has never had to really consistently deal with with him and it just opens up the entire offense because yes he's not you're not going to set up plays for him to run off screens and hit movement stuff that's not who he's going to be i'm not even saying he's going to be a 40 plus percent three-point shooter for his career in the nba but being 35 to 39 percent uh on four to five attempts a game that's stuff that the defense has to respect. That's stuff they ha- they either can't help off of, which opens up driving lanes for teammates. That's stuff they either have to close out really aggressively, which again, he can then attack and manipulate and you know do some other stuff within the offense or just knock down the open three. So it, it, it's just an improvement that we've been waiting for. And it's what we wanted to see from him last year and the year before and the year before. But sometimes it just takes time and it seems like he's gotten there. Yeah, I mean, for him, really, it's just a question of, you know, the rest of his skill set is, you know, as you mentioned, he's an excellent cutter, you know, really solid connected passer. And so, you know, then it just becomes a question of almost more important that the defense looks at him on the three-point line than it is that he's consistently knocking them down of, okay, is he someone we have to worry about in terms of coverage? Or, you know, and I use the example of Rajon Rondo just because it easily comes to mind for me where that one season he shot 37% from three-point range for the Kings is like he shot 37% from three-point range because he had two wide open threes a game and he took only those two and he knocked them down at a 37% rate, right? It's a question of it's not going to change the defense at all that he, you know, every other game essentially is knocking down a three-pointer, right? It's okay, when we're scheming, we have to bear in mind that he's someone who can hurt us if we leave him alone. Right. And that's almost more important than hitting them at a 40% rate is, you know, hitting them at a decently high rate, but making defenses at least have to worry about it. Yeah. And, you know, just looking at his numbers here real quick, he's at the time I wrote the piece, he was over 40%. He's dropped just under to 39.6 on 6.6 three point attempts per 100 possessions. It's a really, really good number. There's solid volume, solid success rate. But what that also leads to is an assist rate over 22, uh, a free throw rate over 51. So he's attacking closeouts. He's getting to the uh, getting to the rim, drawing fouls, still having an effective field goal rate over 54 and a turnover rate under 14. That's all just really solid connective stuff. Is he going to be an all-star? Probably not. But is he going to be a Herb Jones guy where he's going to be able to defend, uh, elevate the offense of those around him, similar to Christian Brown? Yeah, I, I'm pretty comfortable taking him in the middle of the first round because I'm really confident in his ability to do those little things that elevate the play of those around him. So the flip side of the production argument, which is most of what we've been talking about, is the idea, as you call it, in the piece. And you know, there's one guy in this idea section that I do want to drill down on just because he's someone who I hugely believed in before the season and have slowly been selling off my stock since. And I'm not even sure it's who you think I'm going to say. Ademara. Oh, okay. He's someone who I was considering a potential top five guy heading into the year just because of his combination of size and passing and really just his ability to be 
a connective piece on offense and, you know, someone who could potentially cover multiple different areas on defense. And I mean, the defense has been a mess and, you know, part of this is it's become increasingly difficult to have any idea how to evaluate any UCLA (laughs) prospect. (laughs) You know, I mean, I, I guess I can give myself a, you know, half gold star for having refused to give up on Jaime Jaquez, but you know, it's difficult to evaluate any, player and any freshman particularly for Mick Cronin but you know as you say in the piece the entire UCLA situation continues to spiral by the game you know that's that's part of it and you know it makes it easy for me to not sell off all of my Mara stock but the flip side is even with that situation it's the kind of thing where if he was more aggressive on either end of the floor but you know particularly if he was you know more aggressive offensively it would be the kind of thing where okay, we kind of have to play him because everything else is falling apart and hey, at least he can do something effective, right? And I don't know. I mean, it's hard for me to give up on him in the long term, but there's a lot of troubling signs. Yeah, this one wasn't quite as difficult for me to kind of move on from um, because I I had him in like mid to late 20s entering the year. I was way more skeptical than a lot of other people. You weren't alone by any means uh, and being super excited about him. And some of his tape from like FIBA stuff with Spain is so much fun because he is just a brilliant passer at that position. Um, And he, he still is. I fully buy the passing super creative. It's just, he doesn't do anything else. And I, I don't know if it's situation based. I, you know, confidence, uh, being homesick, homesick. Who knows? You know, I, I can't imagine being 18 and going to a different country um, and expected to play at one of the most prestigious programs in that sport um, with those expectations of being a first round guy, you know, or a top 10 guy. It's uh, a lot of pressure. It's a lot of change. So, and some guys react to it differently. Um, my issue with Mar is that he just hasn't done anything and his minute load has diminished by the game uh like on bartorvik their initial filter is set at uh like a 40 percent of the minute share and you have to adjust that to even get his name to pop up now where it's down to 29.2 percent um of available minutes he's played in and when you look at his numbers it's a whole lot of red which unfortunately is uh does not represent fire for awesome stuff (laughs) um there, you know, the block rate is at eight. That's encouraging. He's a good shot blocker because he's freaking huge. Um, but he doesn't move well in space. He's not shooting at all. I was hoping he would at least start taking some threes. Yeah. Zero attempts on the year. Um, the you know, assist rate of 17 and a half is encouraging for that position, but it's not what you would hope. You know, we I think some of the intrigue with him this year was that we're going to see him operate from the nail and the elbows and, you know, top of the key and be that kind of offensive hub. And he hasn't done that. The rebounding numbers are nowhere near where they should be for someone his size. The free throw rate is way too low for someone his size, the effective field goal rate and offensive rating and all just everything is way below where it should be for someone as big as he is and as talented as he is with the ball and someone who sees the floor like he does it's just been a resounding disappointment. Unfortunately, I'm not saying he's never going to be good, but I don't think he's a this year guy. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned the block rate as being encouraging, which, you know, you would expect from someone his size, the rebounding being what it is for someone his size, you know, is the same, the exact inverse, right? Uh, uh, I would really hope that this number would be higher and, we're 45 minutes in, so I'm 43 and a half minutes behind your record for plugging your own piece on the Friday show. But 
here I am plugging my piece about Dylan Mitchell from last week, where, you know, there were a lot of signs, I think, in his tape from this year that show that a lot of his issues from last year were hesitation, were, yeah. you know, not really having the confidence to bring the ball up himself, you know, not, you know, believing in his athleticism enough to crash the glass as aggressively as he has, you know, all of those sorts of things where, you know, there were concerns certainly last year about his motor. And he's, I think, addressed a lot of those this year, right? But the flip side is it took him until this year. And, you know, he was someone who very similarly, I, you know, held out hope for him as a first round guy through later in last season that I probably should have. And, you know, it's the kind of thing where, okay, you know, it's encouraging that, hey, he comes back, you know, figures a lot of stuff out, looks a lot better as a prospect. You know, we could see the same from Mara. We could see the same from Justin Edwards, who you also have on here. We could maybe see the same from Garway Duall, you know, year two. Yeah, the, we'll see on the offense, but hey, that was what people were saying about Dylan Mitchell too last year, right? But it's the kind of thing where, you know, it's getting to the point in the cycle where I'm, you know, feeling like I have to, you know, as you say, move the idea of it and think, okay, it's not going to be there this year, right? It's like, you know, I still believe, but maybe not enough to, you know, keep him in the draft this year. And I think the other side of that too is a lot of these freshmen who are struggling will want to return because they don't think they're the player that they've been through the first couple months of the season. And, you know, sometimes it's second half of the season breakout. Sometimes it's, you know, like Dylan Mitchell, they come back the next year and they look like a different player in a very positive way. But Again, I mean, sometimes you take a chance on these guys. Sometimes they declare and, you know, sometimes it ends up not working out because the reasons that they weren't productive their first year end up carrying forward. Yeah. And I mean, if you're a one and done guy and you're not going in the first round, the track record isn't great, unfortunately. And that that's why, you know, another reason I wanted to kind of write this was I, I think it's really important that we kind of properly measure the expectations with these guys where if you're not a one and done guy or if you're a one and done guy and you're going in the 40s or the 50s or not at all your career might be over and that sucks to be 19 and now you're gonna have to go figure out how to make a Ross like there's obviously good money and your life's not over and all you know just put in making sure I'm clear on that mm-hmm. you know there, there's still avenues and whatnot but the NBA constantly tells us what they value. And sometimes some of the production that these young guys put up isn't up to snuff. And if NBA teams, the the patience with development continues to get, get lower. You're if you, if you're not getting a promise or really good advice that you're going to be in that first round with that guaranteed contract, I just go back to school. You're going to be better off because I know everyone wants to get to the NBA, but this idea of you're a failure if you're not a one and done, like, what are we doing? Like, who cares? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. What matters is that you're ready. And once you're ready, that's where stuff becomes fun. That's where it becomes interesting. And if you're kind of clinging to a hope of being in the 40s and potentially getting a two-way contract from an NBA team that you can then turn into you know, a guaranteed contract on a year-by-year basis, that's not realistic. It's probably not going to happen because they're going to replace you next year with someone hoping to do the same thing or someone from overseas that they can get cheaper or an upperclassman that they can get cheaper. Just go back to school for another year, figure out your game, build that confidence up, have the game slow down mentally, you know, be ready for what you're going to experience. You just went through a rough year. That's okay. That's okay. 
being 20 as a rookie is not the end of the world. It's better to do that and be ready than being 18 or 19 and forcing it when no one really thinks you're ready or you're there. And even you haven't shown everything that you're capable of. It's just the, this whole idea of you have to be a one and done. If you're a top high school recruit, it's ridiculous. High school rankings mean absolutely nothing. The only thing I use them for is to construct a board and start looking at guys in high school film over the summer. That's it. I just, they mean nothing when it comes to the draft or the NBA and just the the whole stigma about returning to school just needs to change. And especially now that with NIL, the NCAA has deigned to allow players to, you know, earn a fraction of the money that they make for the NCAA for themselves, right? The calculus is even, even more skewed in the sense of, man, I mean, this is, this is mean, but I'm going to go with it anyway, right? Like Drew Timmy made more money at Gonzaga than he's ever going to make in, you know, I mean, maybe he gets to that kind of contract in the EuroLeague eventually, right? But he's going to make a lot more money from Gonzaga NIL than he's ever going to make in the NBA. Well, and just kind of along that same route, you look at a guy like Reed Shepard, um, he could probably make $10 million at least next year at Kentucky if he comes back. So it's like, all right, do I want, if I'm not getting a top 10 guarantee to you know a team that works for me that makes sense, do I just go back to school? Do I make more money there than I would, you know, as, as a rookie in a with a team that I don't trust that I think is going to screw me over developmentally? I, I think that's going to be a really, really fascinating conversation with some of these guys. All right. Anything else you want to cover before you wrap this one up? Uh, no, just no ceilings, NBA.com. Go check it out. we got a lot of fun stuff coming out this week. All right. Well, he is Tyler Metcalf. You can find him on Twitter at T Metcalf one, one. See, I always screw up the intro <laughs> when you're on. It's just something about your face makes me screw up I'm, the I'm outro. I'm so intimidating. I, I get Every it. time. I get it. Yeah. Every time. <laughs> Anyway, you can find him on Twitter at tmetcalf11, and you can find his written work on noceilingsmba.com. You can find me on Twitter at NBA Johnson, and you can find my written work on noceilingsmba.com as well. As Metcalf mentioned, we've got a ton of fun stuff coming out for the rest of this week, so be sure to keep up with all of that. If you've been enjoying the podcast, please take the time to leave a rating and or a review in whatever podcast player you might be using. That's always much appreciated on our end. And if you have any feedback regarding the deep dives portion of the podcast, feel free to reach out to me either via Twitter or email nickaj.nba at gmail.com. And as always, thanks so much for listening.